0: Hey, dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of The Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. If you've been in dog training for any length of time, you've probably heard somebody say, no one method works for all dogs, or this doesn't work for every dog, or you've probably heard people say that something does work for every dog. And I want to talk about methods today and whether or not they do work for every dog or, or what what all of these claims really mean. And so I need to start with defining the word method. So a method is defined as a systematic or established form of a procedure for accomplishing or approaching something. And defined that way, I'm gonna say absolutely, there are methods in dog training. And in fact, we should probably always be utilizing a method in dog training, because if we're not, we're not using a systematic or established form of a procedure, Then we're throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. And that kind of experimentation is perfectly fine when we're training our own dogs. But when we're taking somebody's money, it becomes less fine as far as I'm concerned. So we owe our clients efficacy. We owe our clients methods. We owe our clients systematic or established forms of procedures. That is definitely true. So if that's true and somebody comes in and says, well, no one method works for all dogs, I always want to pose the question of, you know, then does that mean to you that method is defined really tightly? Are you then defining method as using a certain tool? Or worse, I've heard people say Positive reinforcement doesn't work for all dogs, claiming that positive reinforcement is a method. When in fact, positive reinforcement, positive punishment, negative reinforcement, and negative punishment are simply the four quadrants of operant conditioning. They are names for natural occurrences, they are names for things that are happening. Like we have a word for the fact that if I drop my pen right now, it will fall to the ground. The word for that is gravity. Gravity is not a method any more than positive reinforcements, a method. So those are not methods. A method might be that I am going to take a constructional approach to treating aggression by utilizing the functional reinforcer for the aggression to reinforce behaviors other than aggression. That is a method. And claiming that that's not going to work in every case is assuming that the person carrying it out is not paying attention to every nuance in the procedure and not paying attention to what's happening in front of them. Okay. There's a phrase that's really popular that honestly makes my skin crawl, which is train the dog in front of you. And the reason it makes my skin crawl is I think it's usually attached to um, the idea that you get to flex, you get to try whatever you want to try based on what the dog is doing. And again, I think we need to be more careful than that. I think we need to certainly always look at the dog that's in front of us, but also look at our history, the dog's history and what happened yesterday, not just what happened today and predict what's going to happen tomorrow and base everything that we do on that. So I think that if we look at methods as guiding principles rather than recipes and you should you know call back to my episode with my friends marissa martino and lisa Molinax, where we talked about recipes if we look at it instead not as a recipe but as a an established way of doing things then we might see that claiming that no one method works for all dogs may just be maybe a false claim maybe a myth going back to the kind of recipe thought if we do think of if we do think of these procedures of these methods as recipes meaning if you don't use you know if you use a cup of powdered sugar in a recipe when the recipe calls for a cup of flour your recipe will fail right but the reason it's going to fail is not because of the recipe itself the reason it's going to fail is because you Lost sight of the guiding principles that were the methodology. Okay, so the guiding principles that flour does a certain thing in a recipe that powdered sugar does not do, and vice versa, right? So if I look at my, let's say, method for uh, teaching a sit stay, okay, if I look at my method for teaching a sit stay, the guiding principles behind that method are going to be what do I want that sit stay to look like? In the future, do I want the sit stay to be generally relaxed? The dog can look around if it wants to, but it needs to kind of stay where I put it. Or do I want that sit stay to be a coiled spring? The dog is ready to burst out of the sit stay. If I look at the behaviors that I actually want, then I can select my reinforcers and I can select how I use them because I know how they will affect the behaviors in front of me. And then I can go about utilizing a method for teaching sit-stay. So if my method is that I use a terminal release, like a clicker, so I click and then the dog moves towards reinforcement, if that's the method, that is going to work for everyone to get the exact behavior that I want, which is that coiled spring. But if I want that lazy, relaxed sit-stay, I'm probably going to use a different reinforcer and a different um, marker system. And guess what all of those things are? Also methods. So, when you look at a method as a recipe that you never waver on, because I'm using the same guiding principles for either way that I teach the sit stay, and I might teach a sit stay the exact same um, in both of these ways to the same dog to get two different results, then understand that all of these things are methods because all of these things are established forms of procedures and they are going to work all the time. So, if you say, well, it didn't work on my dog, and so I chose to use a collar correction instead. It isn't actually the method that failed you. It was your application of the procedure that failed you, right? Because it's an established procedure that does work, that is effective. And take into account every nuance that the learner brings to the table. Okay. So if I'm training an Italian Greyhound to sit, stay versus a St. Bernard, the little Iggy is not going to want to sit, stay. It's going to be cold. It's going to be shivering. Any surface I put him on is not going to be warm enough for him to want to do the sit. And so, <laughs> I'm going absolutely going to need to adjust. The same basic method still going to work. But I'm going to want to adjust a lot of things with Iggy. I'm going to probably want to use a different reinforcer. I'm probably going to want to allow him to sit on a cushion. I may decide that a down stay or a stand stay is perfectly fine, but I'm going to use the same method to teach him. So saying a method doesn't work because of your inability to adjust to what's going on um, in your current situation, Is not fair. It's a fallacy, right? And then also the quadrants, the forces like gravity of positive reinforcement, et cetera, are not methods, right? They're just pieces of what we are doing. They're just natural forces that are in existence in all of learning and teaching. So the next time you kind of say, well, you know, that method won't work for all dogs, I want you to think really hard about is it the method that's not working for all dogs or is it the trainer? that's not working for all dogs. Food for thought. Okay. And a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Sage who writes, hi, Sarah, new listener to your podcast. I've been binging the last couple of months and I love it. So my apologies if you've addressed this somewhere that I've missed so far. Well, welcome Sage. I'm so happy that you are here and listening now. Sage continues, my partner and I are getting a puppy in a couple of weeks. I've noticed there's a lot of information on multi-dog households, but this will be an only dog in our multi-human house. I have a fair amount of training experience. My partner has almost none. We both want to be involved in training and eventually handling agility if the pup likes agility. Can you talk about ways to set up a dog for success with multiple handlers and trainers? Can this be done or is it best if there's a primary handler? especially in a situation with experience mismatch Um, and edit to add that the puppy is a herding line border collie coming home at age eight weeks. So Sage, congratulations on the incoming puppy. And I hope that this puppy is all you, all you hope for (laughs) all your hopes and dreams. And this is an interesting question. Number one, if you both really get into agility, you'll probably get more dogs. Okay, that's just speaking from experience. There may be a few more dogs in your life (laughs) coming at you. If you are the more experienced dog trainer and you're going to be the primary dog trainer, then that's great. And I think that's fine. If your partner is going to be the primary trainer and be learning alongside the new learner, your partner is going to need a really good coach in order to do that. So there's a few problems here and without getting to like couples counseling <laughs> here, which you know, that might be just a good thing to also engage in. What's going to be important to understand is especially your partner having less experience in dog training than you is that you are going to need to have a conversation about whether or not your partner is coachable by you. Because if she's not coachable by you, then she's going to need to be coached by somebody else. And that coach is probably best involved kind of with both of you and having you both sort of take turns. So if you're both going to go to the same class, fantastic. Um, Take turns training the dog in the same class, but expect there to be some frustration and some feelings. I mean, there's just things are going to pop up here. As far as the animal training part of this, which is really what I'm qualified to talk about goes, it is best for one person and the more experienced better trainer to train the dog and then the other person to get to handle the dog once that dog is trained so that you don't have two green learners at once the dog will be a green learner and your partner will be a green learner if you're new to agility you will also be a green learner Um, and so one of there's going to be two green learners at, at one point or another but ideally you're both not green. So if you train the dog and then your partner gets to learn to handle the dog once the dog is trained, and then maybe you think about adding more dogs, that's probably best case scenario. Uh, Good luck, Sage, and keep us posted. Next one comes from Katie who writes, I have a question regarding getting emotional responses appropriate for greeting behaviors. My Aussie has always struggled with being hypersocial. I over socialized to the extent of teaching her she got to say hello to everything as a puppy because I was worried about breed tendencies. Yet impulse control has been hard after doing that. I've accidentally trained in what I've called the slingshot effect. I can get her, I can get and keep her attention on me for the most part before greeting people or dogs. Her stay weight is pretty fantastic. I have eye contact, quietness, and stillness, but there's an intensity I don't like. Then when I release, she goes from zero to 100, often running up to whoever, whatever it is in an over-aroused state. It seems like I can only get her to completely ignore people or dogs, which she can in most scenarios, or having her crying, air jumping, and over the top for people, then sometimes rude and in-your-face to dogs. Is it an issue of timing, the release cue, something else? So Katie, I think this is a problem that is more common than you might think, especially when you try to build stimulus control around high arousal behaviors. You usually don't remove the arousal from the behavior. You just add control to it. So in the same sense that I want my dog to hold a sit stay in front of agility equipment, but I also want my dog to take agility equipment with major intensity. You have trained your dog to Be able to ignore but then also greet with insane intensity right. So if this were my dog, I would just move into a strict no visiting situation and you didn't tell me how old this dog is so the dog may be too young to do that they may still actually be needing some social socialization. So I want you to think about that. I don't know everything that's going on here. So I'm giving you kind of a blanket recommendation, which is to really, really practice not saying hi, to really, really practice being around people and other dogs and not saying hi, because your pendulum has swung really, really hard towards hyper-sociability. So we need to swing that pendulum away from sociability and more towards neutrality. And I'd be doing a lot of reinforcing of just hanging out with me. And I probably wouldn't allow her to greet people for a long time. Um, Often this really hypersocial stuff towards people can turn into aggression as well. And that may feel impossible to you, but this place of intense conflict as the dog matures. So if this dog is like a, a year, a year and a half, by the time the dog is two, two and a half, three, you might be seeing actual suspicion of people, actual get away from me of people. So I would keep the dog around people but have them ignore the dog and do lots of reinforcing for the dog ignoring them. Okay, next one comes from Ariel, who writes. I know you have a lot of episodes on puppies. I added a new puppy to my household this weekend, and I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. (laughs) I know this will pass and we will all get acclimated, but what are your tips or strategies for initially balancing puppy management, like keeping the puppy alive and harmony in the household with more structured training sessions for puppy and your adult dogs? And I admit to some paralysis based on not wanting to repeat what I feel may have been past puppy training mistakes. Congrats on your puppy, Ariel. Number one, having a puppy is overwhelming. It's really hard. It's like having an infant. You're having, you have an infant mammal in your care. It is a ton of work and it's really hard. So give yourself some grace and know that the only timeline that matters is yours. Okay. The first order of business with an infant puppy with a little baby is just to keep them alive, right? To keep them alive, work on house training, that sort of thing. And as the puppy starts to be ready for individual training sessions You can incorporate them throughout your day. Now, if it's an issue of I can't train the puppy because I can't put my adult dogs up, then what you need to be working on is confinement for everybody so that everybody can chill while you train one and not the others. And that's your kind of first order of business. But in general, I let puppies show me what they're ready for. A lot of breeds don't mature um, even physically enough to do a lot of real training until they're 12, 14 weeks of age. Or in the case of my Border Collie puppy, Iggy, she's 13. But when she was a baby, she was ready to rock at eight weeks, could have learned anything. I mean, she was physically mature. She not, I mean, obviously she wasn't an adult, that kind of physically mature, but she was ready to go. And I had to kind of hold myself back from just training her everything all the time, But yeah, your first order business is just house training and socializing and generally speaking, being a dog in the world. And then you can start to do the other stuff. And when you feel overwhelmed, just stop, address basic needs and don't do anything else. Okay. Next one comes from Mary who writes, our 10 month old Kelpie girl likes to chase small dogs, but she's very good with her two older housemates, also Kelpies. She loves going to the dog park and plays beautifully there with dogs of various sizes. She defers to older, bigger, bossier dogs and follows rather than leads. Even with smaller dogs there, she has a bit of a chase, but not too close, and is soon distracted by whatever the more interesting dogs are up to. Back home on lead and otherwise, however, she's appalling with littler dogs, stands up on back legs, barking, etc. Also, cannot visit a small dog without poor Fluffy being rounded up somewhere whimpering in about 15 seconds. What's to be done? I'm glad she's confident, a confident girl, but this is entirely inappropriate. I listened several times to your podcast about over-arousal and the three strategies, and I'm finding it difficult to apply to this problem. She can get bored doing dog TV with the trigger stimulus, but only when she's not moving herself. Give her a fence to run on the outside of a small puppy enclosure, for example, and she would do that all day. So Mary, I don't know everything in this case. And for me to give you a definitive answer, I would need to know everything. But my blanket feeling on this is that this is gearing up to be not an appropriate dog to be around small dogs. And I have quite a bit of experience with larger dogs with high prey drive simply not being safe around small dogs, even though they're lovely dogs who are friendly and fine. If they're not looking at small dogs the same way that they're looking at big dogs, which it sounds like she's really not, her responses are very different to small dogs. I would number one decide for me that it would not be worth my dog hurting a small dog to have them, and that's hurting with a T to have them around small dogs. If I'm in that dog park with your dog and my dog is little, I'm leaving. That makes me uncomfortable, right? Never mind the fact that my small dog, I have a little 19-pound dog, but she would never be in a dog park because I don't trust people with big dogs to make smart choices. But As you're saying, it's entirely inappropriate. It can't be allowed to happen. So the other thing that you need to do, and I would not be doing dog park TV because running up and down the fence line with small dogs behind it is only sparking more of that prey drive. And I have made a lot of changes to dog park TV that are not in the podcast episode, but it is a lot more structured these days. That basically isn't the route that I would go. I would be more interested in Doing a lot of training around small dogs, like if I can get in a class that's got some small dogs in it, and we're all on leash, Um, when we're doing a lot of training, a lot of focus on me, that's more the route that I would go. And I would not, I would personally not allow any more free play around small dogs without at least some safety measures taken, like a basket muzzle. And that might sound severe to you, but I have known too many nice, socially appropriate large dogs, medium to large dogs that killed small dogs and surprised people, completely shocked people, because if they're looking at it as a prey object, they're not looking at it as another dog. And you would not release your dog into the dog park. If there were, I'd say a rabbit in the dog park, I don't know. I wouldn't, you wouldn't also expect that rabbit to survive. And small dogs sometimes really evoke the exact same feelings in those bigger dogs. So Mary, again, I don't know everything about this, and so I could be completely wrong, but to me, it sounds like this dog is not on its way to being safe around small dogs. And I would be working really hard on when you're around small dogs, you're paying attention to me. You're not being social. All right. And last one comes from Aaron. Aaron writes, do you have recommendations or a strategy you would use to take best advantage of NFC? That's not for competition training in the ring for dogs who don't care at all about toys. All I can think of is doing a few obstacles and then running out to a reinforcement stash. So Aaron's talking about in the United States, we have a growing number of organizations that will offer you the ability to essentially do a training round. um, and you. But the only reinforcer they allow in the training round is a toy. And for a variety of reasons, I also do not partake in these rounds. Um, So my daughter, and I may later with Raya, because I think she'll be totally fine working for a toy, in competition but with Felix I I did it a few times early in his career and it was a disaster because um of other things that we can talk about later if people are interested not because he doesn't like toys really quite the opposite is true for me there's so much it, basically for me I don't need to spend $25 to run in a trial to train my dog I train my dog elsewhere the trial is a test it's not for training so To me, if you want to do a few obstacles and run out to a stash and a lot of UKI venues are allowing you to do that and then return to the ring and you feel like that's a good training procedure that you've pulled together with the help of your trainer, great, have at it. But in general, for me, I haven't put a lot of energy into this problem in my mind because it isn't a problem in my opinion. So if the dog won't work for a toy or working for toys is problematic in any other way, then I'm probably just not gonna do NFC runs. I'm probably gonna just do training and I'll do, you know, I might drop into other people's classes I might use other places if that's what I think I need. But we put really way too much emphasis on trying to add reinforcement to the run. And it which, but the run, the trial run is so short that I don't see a lot of reason for doing that. And probably you have a reason for doing this, Erin. And I don't know what it is, but it probably has another solution. So I'm sorry, that's probably a terrible answer and not the one you wanted. (laughs) But I hope that it's helpful for you. Thanks you all for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash CogDogRadio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.